Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly and during the show we'll be joined by our 250 game veteran of the Victorian Premier League and former Notts County man Dean Hennessy and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. So much to talk about again this week. Off the back of Melbourne City's history, making A-League Grand Final win over Sydney that franked their Premiership title. The Matildas and Ollie Roos Tokyo squads are in. The Socceroos know who their next opponents are in what will hopefully be the final qualifying stage ahead of the Qatar World Cup next year. And of course, the Euros are building up to an epic crescendo. And we've got it all covered here on Box to Box. We'll get started with ESPN's Joey Lynch to review the Ollie Roos and Matilda squads for the Olympics. Squads bristling with the rising stars of men and women's football, established stars, of course, in the women's case. Nobody covers it closer, so we'll be interested to see what he thinks of our chances in both groups, which are full of very highly competitive sides. The USA in the case of the Matildas, Spain and Argentina for the Oli Roos. We'll look back at the recent Soccer Roos draw with the Asian Games' Scott McIntyre and wrap up the hour looking at Melbourne City's success in the A-League with their CEO, Brad Rouse. In the second hour, Willem will kick off with second edition news and the latest on the Soccer Roos and Matildas. Then we shift our attention to the Euros and Max Rushton from the Guardian Sports Weekly podcast. Everybody's got to listen to that podcast and, of course, Talk Sport, the UK's biggest sports radio station. If you haven't heard Max's work before, there is no bigger England man, so we'll find out from Max just how confident he is about whether football is actually coming home. We'll continue the Euro discussion with Dino and Dell and wrap it up with stoppage time. Edge, we need four hours this week, I reckon, mate. <laughs> like, every week just seems to get bigger and bigger, but mm. uh, so excited about the group um, that the Socceroos have been joining. Willem will give us all the details in a, in a moment, but um, how, how good was Melbourne City? But I'll tell you what, first time since 1966, the Poms have been able to beat their arch-enemy Germany in a major tournament. Uh, they're dancing on the ceiling and all my social media oh, feeds... I'll tell you what, they've gone completely uh, bonkers over there in England because they beat mm. Germany. But they've still got it ahead of them, and mm. Ukraine might provide a bit of a challenge for them. But we'll go through all of that and more. But Willem, who are the Socceroos playing in the all-important FIFA World Cup qualifying? The Socceroos, Michael, will be playing Japan, Saudi Arabia, China, Oman and Vietnam. And it means, of course, the Socceroos will have to wait again to play Iran. That long wait will continue, the two nations having not met since 1997. The third round will commence in September. It looked a bit of a dream draw, Michael, until Japan got pulled out. The way they did it was from the bottom pot up, so Australia was just waiting to see if they'd be playing Iran or Japan. Although you've also told me in, in recent weeks to be wary of a little old Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam, um, for me, they've been a much improved nation in Asian football. I've seen them play live a lot. They are very, very um, aggressive and uh, and fast and attacking. They're well coached and they're an emerging football power of Southeast Asia. But how about we've drawn Japan in every FIFA World Cup qualifying phase uh, since we entered uh, the Asian Football Confederation. Quite remarkable. They will be a big foe. That, that will be a huge game. We'll play them in Japan probably. There's much of a muchness between them and South Korea really, isn't there? I mean, but 
well, head, they are. Quality. They are. We actually don't have a good record against South Korea, but we have a better record against we, we against them Japan. In the, uh, Asian Cup final, of course. Yeah, That's I know. But in terms of um, other matches, we've come up, up, mm. come up against them. They're not so good. But um, interestingly enough, um, the, the FA has been in deep discussions with the government about the protocols for home qualifiers. And at this stage, it looks like we won't have any home qualifiers. So they're working Ooh. through a home away from home scenario where we'll play a Middle Eastern. Um, competition in somewhere in Southeast Asia, and then we'll play um, the Asian uh, nations in uh, in a hub in the Middle East. So that's the the fallback positions, but that's the world of COVID we live in. And, and me as a football person, and uh, I just you know considering all the dialogue around COVID at the moment, Willem, I just would have hoped that the government could have come up with a solution to uh, get players in and out in a bubble, and so we could have home qualifiers because it is just so important. This is a government that once got the uh, the name of the national skipper wrong when they won the, the 2015 Mike Asian Cup. Mike Yedinak. So I can't say I'm too surprised, Tony Michael. Abbott, of course. That is, that is particularly uh, disappointing and a big headache for Graham Arnold. Arnold, this week, has selected his Olyroo squad for the Olympics with eight players with Socceroos experience included. Arnold revealed 30 to 40 clubs had denied his requests for overage players. He couldn't get them released, with only Mitch Duke and Ruan Tongyuk selected over the age threshold. 13 of the 18 currently play their club football in Australia and important Importantly, skipper Thomas Deng has been selected following a lengthy battle with injury in Japan. Rob, I think the unfortunate name to stand out missing is Aidan O'Neill. We were both at Amy Park watching him put in a, a fantastic display mm. at the base of Melbourne Park for Melbourne City in the grand final. But I think Arnold had made his uh, his intentions pretty clear by picking McGree, Metcalf and Denny Genro in the Socceroos squad as his preferred midfielders. Yeah, and um, and he wants to put um, Daniel Arzani back on the map, as he said. Um, Joey Lynch uh, wrote an article on that subject. Uh, so, look... It's a tricky scenario for Australia. We've got a, a really tough group to to, um, to play in. The expectations, I think we've discussed it before, against uh, you know getting a result out of uh, the group that we're in uh, with uh, Spain, Argentina, and Egypt. Uh, you know, a limited at best. So group of dreams, <laughs> exactly. Group so, of dreams. Rob. So if um, if well, we know Arnie how positive he is. So so look, I, I can understand the mega. Or the big clubs not uh, wanting to, to release their players. So, um, you know, if we're going to get a result, I think we get a result with the squad that we've got um, either way. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I just hope that uh, that they're competitive and um, and I think really our focus on getting some silverware is with the Matildas if they can get it together. Tony Gustafsson has rewarded the recent performances of Mary Fowler and Kyra Cooney-Cross in selecting them in his 18-player squad for the Olympics. The teenage pair represent an eye to the future in an otherwise experienced list with 12 players having played at the Rio Olympics in 2016. Tegan Michael was preferred to Mackenzie Arnold as the reserve keeper, while Steph Catley and Chloe Legazzo return after periods of injury. Michael, were there any surprises for you? I think outside of, of Fowler and Cooney Cross, this is uh, a squad not looking to the 2023 World Cup, but, but definitely on the now, and that's probably shown by the inclusions of Elise Callan Knight and Kai Simon in particular. Yeah, um, Amy Harrison's probably the unlucky one uh, who's not in the team, uh, but fantastic news for Mary Fowler and uh, Kyra Cooney-Cross who have really um, set their relative competitions alight uh, this season, so that's a really terrific reward. Tegan Micah, for me, was always going to be the number two keeper, and I think she'll she'll push for a number one spot with uh, with Lydia Williams in the next 12 months. Um, yeah, but the, the big... He's rolled the dice, there's no doubt about it, because Steph Catley, Elise Kellard-Knight... And Kai Simon have played collectively about five games in the last 18 months. So he's rolled the dice on the experienced players. We know their talent. We know the significance of their leadership in the group as well. But for me, that could be the decision that um, brings him undone if uh, any of those players go down. 
Melbourne City capped off their dawn and A-League season with their maiden championship on Sunday, defeating Sydney FC 3-1. The grand final swung on Chris Beast's dismissal of Luke Bratton after 35 minutes, with City Scott Jamison putting his side ahead 10 minutes later. The captain says, I've got this one, boys. Against Hewitt Bell. Scott Jamison! Scott Galloway's late goal sealed the win for City, who have now won all three domestic honours available in Australia. Not bad for a club, Rob, that many uh, have, uh, well, criticised over the journey for not winning trophy. They've now got Premiership, Championship and FFA Cup. And the story in the days since has been, this will be the first of how many championships for City? you just got to hope that this is the making of that club um, from the early days as the, the heart. Uh, they've struggled for crowds. Anybody who watches the A-League knows that. Um, you know, I've been as critical as anybody uh, about their uh, investment in uh, promotion around uh, game day and uh, the capacity of an organisation uh, such as the one that owns the club to, to spend bigger than any club in, in the competition uh, in this A-League. So, look, I think it's great to see. Uh, you know, I know we joked last week that uh, 15,000 capacity was about how much mm-hmm. you could expect there either way but I got a sense that that there were a lot of people who had been around the sort of periphery of um, Melbourne City for a long long time who were there and they were really passionate um, on uh, on Sunday evening so I really hope that for the sake of the club and the A-League that this is the next step because we've seen you know too many small crowds uh, around the A-League that's probably the only downside this year but obviously with the overlay of COVID so uh, yeah all good for City, I think. And Michael, your thoughts on the key moments? Firstly, the dismissal of Luke Bratton for the two yellow cards, and secondly, the penalty. For my part, I thought Beath had a pretty good game. I thought Beath got it right, um, no doubt about that. Um, Luke Bratton will be very disappointed with that. He's a prime mover for Sydney FC, and they were always uh, First hard ever up. red card in his uh, professional career. Yeah, they're always hard up, um, uh, one losing him. I know the family well. Uh, Gary Bratton, his dad, was a, a, a Hollywood player for a long time, so... I know the family well, and uh, he'll, they'll be smarting. They'll be smarting. And, and Sydney FC are smarting, but, um, yeah, have, have we seen a changing of the guard? I'm with you, Rob. I think Melbourne City mm. now, the narrative is starting to emerge, and so it should. Um, we're starting to see some wonderful sort of backstories. You know, Paddy Gisnorbo, his involvement with the club, and uh, I just sense that they're, uh, they're on the verge of a very, very good period. Heading abroad, Lionel Messi's Barcelona contract has expired, although it looks highly likely the free agent will remain at the club next season. Club president Jon Laporta was elected on the promise he'd keep Messi at Camp Nou, and while admitting the situation is not ideal, he's told reporters negotiations are progressing. Messi famously attempted to leave the club for free last August before going on to score 30 goals from 35 La Liga appearances. Uh, over 1 billion euros in debt, Barcelona. Lionel Messi might just be uh, hedging his bets. Let's see how that unfolds. But I'll tell you what, he's still got it. He's been the man in Copa America. He has been, but I believe it when I see it. He played it for all it was worth last time and then ended up staying. He's done that a few times. So, uh, you know, he's a bit like the boy who cried wolf for me. Uh, I think he'll stay in Barcelona, Carlos, forever. So, uh, <laughs> the that's uh, the end of the session. Our yeah, right. listeners have just thrown their apples at the uh, oh, radio. Well, fair to say. I mean, he's going to argue. Earphones. Uh, I'm not sure people not sure. Yeah, sit there <laughs> listening to box to box eating apples. For, anyway. <laughs> All right, well done, well. Don't you end okay. when you listen That's to a strange turn of phrase, Michael. That is. Yeah. Okay. All right, uh, after the break, we're going to talk to Joey Lynch, ESPN's Joey Lynch. He's all over the Matildas and the Olly Roos squads. We want to find out what his uh, thoughts are on both teams and you know what our expectations should reasonably be. That's next on box to box Box to box Can you believe it? 
For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. Box to box on a busy, busy show. Uh, there's no bigger story than uh, the Olympics coming up very soon. We've got the Matildas and the Ollie Roos both competing. And uh, look, not out of contention in the men's. Uh, certainly, we, despite recent results in the friendlies, have hopes that we'll be competitive in the women's and, and maybe finally get that first medal. And a man who covers both uh, the Ollie Roos and the Matildas very closely is our good mate Joey Lynch from ESPN. How are you, Joey? Doing very well, guys. Thanks for having me back. Mate, not at all. Um, so, Joey, why don't we start with the Matildas? Uh, you know, we uh, we seen Tony Gustafsson uh, uh, set the bar very high in the, the first set of friendlies uh, since he's taken over the reins from Ante Milicic. Uh, we had uh, you know a series of ordinary results before that stalemate against Sweden started to set things back to rights. Uh, our expectations expectations for good reason have been very high around the Matildas uh, do you get a sense that he is starting to understand his squad more and the style that they play and that just maybe um, he um, has got a, a plan that uh, that might sort of reach its, its peak in Tokyo I think he is increasingly understanding that the players that he has and I think that simultaneously just as importantly they are increasingly understanding what he wants from them and the expectations that he holds for a squad. We did see, of course, the two, there's no other way to put them, very poor results in the opening two friendlies uh, that they played against the Dutch and the Germans, but saw some uh, some improvements in the most recent uh, two fixtures, especially the the draw in the last game, showing shoring up uh, that defensive back line and you know, getting some players back for those games, the likes of Ellie Carpenter and Steph Catley, their first time ever actually meeting Gustafs and um, in person for the Sweden and Denmark friendly. So I think they have been making some progress in understanding. That's going to be helped by the fact that a large cohort of them have actually remained in camp with Gustafsson uh, in Sweden uh, since those friendlies and they are continuing to work and continuing to train. So I think the understanding is there. Now, has there had to have been perhaps a rethink of expectations heading in there to Tokyo? Perhaps, um, you know, given that what we've seen, but you, you never know with these sort of things. It's tournament football. Anything can happen in these sort of games. So perhaps, perhaps a medal still can be on the cards for the side. Yeah, but the Olympic Games, uh, Joey, I mean, we all, this is worth sort of me bringing up now. It's worth sort of just reflecting on it. I think um, it's it's a substandard competition because effectively you've only got three teams being selected from Europe uh, and they are the powerhouse. Um, so we do have a good chance of uh, getting through if we can win one of our uh, group games and, and draw them. Um, so if... So if we look at look at it closely, the squad, you know, we have to say well done to Mary Fowler and Kyrie Cooney-Cross. Both players had similar sort of impacts in their leagues. My network uh, tells me that Mary, um, from people that watch uh, the, the French competition regularly, Mary had a very, very good year. She, she, she made a big impact, so they had to go in. Um, uh, and obviously Tegan Micah was clearly better than Mackenzie Arnold, so they're sort of the big selections from my perspective. But what about the, the players that haven't been playing that are returned from injury? Kaya Simon, Elise Callard-Knight and Steph Catley. Um, based on the fact that uh, all the games come thick and fast at the Olympics, is that a risk, selecting those players? There is an inherent risk with it, but there also is the reward that can come with it as well, especially... Uh, for somebody like Steph Catley, who 
on her day is a genuine world-class fullback. I think if you are serious about contending for a medal and you do have a world-class player um, at your disposal, you probably do have to roll the dice somewhat and take them. And somebody like Kellen Knight, I think not only does she bring extensive experience and extensive leadership, but in a tournament like this, she also brings uh, versatility. I know it brought much frustrations to Matilda's fans when she was deployed there, but she can also play as a fullback um, as well as further up the pitch. So, and that's going to be important heading into the tournament. And of course, Kaya Simon um, hasn't had the best run of injuries with late, we'll admit that, but on her day, she can also be a difference maker. She was maybe the one that probably would have been on the bubble uh, the most in our minds, in my mind, sorry, but of course, at the same time, we also have to acknowledge the news today that's come out, uh, reported by the AP, that the squads are actually being extended uh, to twenty uh, from to twenty two from their eighteen. So it's probably likely that if that's officially announced, we'll also see Mackenzie Arnold, Laura Brock, Charlotte Great, and Courtney Nevin brought in uh, to the side to maybe bolster it. So that might affect. Who knows if um, Tony Gustafsson had known that coming in, he would have. He would have felt more comfortable with these players. We don't know, but that's another boost for the side. This is Box to Box. We're talking to Joey Lynch, ESPN's Joey Lynch. Joey, the Ollie Ruse, uh, Graham Arnold had uh, a challenge uh, selecting his over 23s uh, for this squad, uh, but it's really all about the under 23s. And uh, you wrote an article uh, uh, that Arnie, uh, you know, has uh, has got a specific focus on uh, on on recreating the the career or, or regenerating the career of Daniel Arzani, uh, a, a list of, of other young rising stars. Uh, what do you expect of uh, of the Oliroos in in a really tough group? My expectations for the Oliroos are likely to be a lot lower than they are for the Matildas, primarily because of the, the group that they have drawn. You know, three of, or two of world football's um, absolute powerhouses. And then you've got in Argentina and Spain. Um, and then you've also got Egypt, who have made no bones about bringing along Mo Salah, um, which will be a Herculean task for whoever Graham Arnold lines up uh, in his back line. He could, he could potentially be running out of back four or a back five looking at the squad. Uh, that he's brought. But I think it is really going to be uh, interesting to watch, as you talked about, Daniel Arzani, what he can bring to the squad. Because for me, he still is the best prospect in Australian football just because of his inherent skill set. Um, it's a lot easier to teach somebody to run and to get somebody fit than it is to teach them footballing instincts and football and just genuine skill like the type that Daniel Arzani has. So I'm really hoping that we talk about the Olympics not being that major a tournament, which counts doubly so for the men's game than it does the women's game. The women's game, of course, because of the Women's World Cup being a relatively new thing and underfunded thing, the Olympics was a huge stage for them, not so much for the men. But um, if Daniel Arzani can use this Olympic Games to not only find form, but he still needs to find a club um, for the next upcoming season. He's contracted to Manchester City, but he's not breaking into that Manchester City team, obviously. So he's going to need to go out and loan again. If he can find form and really impress against the likes of Spain and Argentina, he might be able to get a much better destination and play much more regular football 
uh, at his club next season, which bodes incredibly well, I think, for the Socceroos, um, which is who are, well, let's face it, the entire purpose of the Ollie Roos. We just want the Ollie Roos to prep our Socceroos to perform as well as they can. So I think that's the one thing I'm really looking forward to from the Ollie Roos. I think as well, the play of uh, the the four youngsters that were with the Socceroos during Asian qualifying, Denny Jonro, Harry Sutar, Connor Metcalf, Ruin Tonya, He's technically an overage, but he's three or four days overage. It feels churlish to categorise him as overage. To see that the growth they have, I particularly think Dennis Yonro could develop into a midfielder that can boss a midfield for the Socceroos for years to come. So there's a lot of promise in that side. I'm not so much expecting results, but I'm hoping that it will serve as a platform and a springboard for better things to come for themselves and the Socceroos. Joey, I'm interested in your thoughts on Graham Arnold's messaging around the overage players. At the start, he said he'd only pick them if absolutely necessary, that he wouldn't uh, base the younger boy squad around the older players. Now he said, here's Mitch Duke and, and Ruin Tongik, basically just Mitch Duke. And he said that 30 to 40 clubs have said no to his attempts to get players released. So it looks very much like he wanted them. After all, is there, is there a touch of contradiction in the messaging from Arnie there? I think there's a layer of, he probably was making calls to literally every club because with new FIFA regulations, he also had to get permission from the clubs of the under-23 players to come. FIFA clubs don't actually have to, no, sorry, clubs don't have to release their under-23s for the Olympics anymore. And he did point out that he there were a number of under-23s that probably would have been in his squad had they been released uh, that weren't. Um, I think maybe somebody like maybe an Alex Gersbach might fit into that role. That's me speculating. Arnold didn't say that, but... Um, with that sort of thing. So there could be a, giving Arnold the benefit of the doubt. There could be some layer of him just crossing the I's and dotting the T's when he's making those 30 to 40 calls because he did say in his press conference that he got three uh, yeses to releasing overage players um, to come to the Olympics, but he's only brought two. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind, I think, when he's talking about that. And I think Arnold was very adamant yesterday in his press conference that, yeah, I know you're going to ask about this. So here's the difficulties in, um, here were the difficulties I faced in assembling the squad. I'll tell you now, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to focus on what I think is a good young squad. So I think he does believe in this squad. Um, we all um, saw last year when he was potentially flirting with a return to clubland. I think the Ollie Roos, played a genuinely huge part in his decision to say, perhaps even bigger than the Socceroos. So I, don't, I do think he cares for over 23s and believes in this squad um, heading into the Tokyo game. Well, Joey, we are all very excited about the Olympics, only a few weeks away. Um, we're hoping that we get some good results in the football, men's and women's. And, uh, mate, we'll have you on again uh, during the course of the tournament. I would have thought to... Uh, to, uh, to break it down as, uh, as we, uh, we go through and hopefully um, get through to the knockout stages. Absolutely, guys. Fingers, fingers and toes crossed. <laughs> Absolutely. Joey Lynch from ESPN. All right, after the break, we're going to talk to Scott McIntyre about the Socceroos draw for the third round of qualifying for the uh, Qatar World Cup next year. There is a fourth round. If you're the th- two third best teams, hopefully we won't have to go that far. Scott McIntyre from the Asian game next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
Berkhamsk Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the this most... This Box to Box on 9 Radio, NTS News Talk Sport. It's been a bumper show this week. Uh, the Ollie Roos, uh, the Matildas, we're talking Melbourne City, but the Socceroos, the third stage of World Cup qualifying has been announced. We know our group and to talk about it, we welcome Scott McIntyre from the Asian Game. How are you, Scott? Hello, guys. Very good. It's a rainy season here, so I'm just um, trying to avoid the rain. But uh, other than that, very good. And who would have thought it, uh, Scott, that uh, every time we've entered a uh, final phase of qualification for FIFA World Cup since we entered the Asian uh, Confederation, we copped Japan. So, um, Iran, um, we don't get to visit Tehran um, this time, but but what do you make of Australia's group? Um, Japan, Saudi Arabia, China, Oman and Vietnam, our opponents. What are your initial thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, it would have been good to see something else, um, except, like you said, uh, Japan and Australia again. Um, obviously, yeah, for, for me, you know, I've got a... Um, and a, a close interest in both camps. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not completely um, uh, unhappy about the whole thing, but it would have been lovely to get Iran, um, like you said. Um, I, I, although I don't know a trip to Tehran um, it would have been in the worst or not, maybe we can get into um, how these um, matches may eventually be hosted. Um, but, yeah, I think the group is, um, is balanced. You'd have to say uh, Oman and China are probably the two weakest links um, in the group. Uh, I've um, spoken extensively to you guys about the development work that's happening in Vietnam and I think from the next edition onwards I think they're going to be close to um, regular qualifiers for World Cup so um, I see them perhaps uh, as an even bigger threat uh, than the Saudis so it's um, it, 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 it's going to be fine I mean Japan are, uh, are not in, infallible um, uh, absolutely I think um, there's an argument to be made that uh, Iran and Korea are perhaps the two strongest nations in Asia at the moment so you've um, yeah, you're not in a group where they are with each other. So you have to say, I think, on the balance of things, it's, uh, it's reasonable for Australia and the chances of qualification um, are, are good. But, uh, yeah, there's obstacles along the way um, in terms of nations and there's obstacles along the way. We still don't know where they're going to be hosted or how they're going to be hosted, which could uh, really play a, a major factor as well. Scott, you've been busy since we last spoke to you. You broke the news on the Asian game that Kevin Musket has been appointed to replace Ange Postacoglu at Yokohama F. Marinos. We know that Muskie followed Ange uh, at the victory in 2013. And I know there's, there's a few people who said that he just sort of went on with what Postacoglu was built, was a little bit of a climb. But in my opinion, it was far from it. By the time Muskie left victory, uh, it was a very different side to what Postacoglu had set up in his brief period there. Uh, so we know Postacoglu has built something quite beautiful at Yokohama, and we know that Kev's reputation follows him all over the world. So I'm just wondering how the Yokohama fans have reacted to your news, firstly in terms of what Kev might do with what Postacoglu has built, and also with uh, with Post- uh, sorry with, with Muskett's uh, reputation uh, around the world, how he might fit in in Japan and uh, in the club, yeah. Well, and, um, we should start by saying it hasn't been formally um, no, confirmed by the club, but it, it certainly is looking that that is the way that they're going to go. Um, I, I mean, you, you know, when he was in charge of the victory, they they had a couple of um, ACL campaigns where they played against the J League opposition, so the name is somewhat familiar. But yeah, looking um, and reading a, a little bit of the reaction from the Mariners fans, I think it's fair to say that not many of them knew uh, who he was, and you know they've. They've dug into um, the YouTube highlights and, and they've pulled out all these kind of hard man, you know, clips from his playing days. And, and I think there, there's a bit of um, mortification that they're maybe going to get that style of football, which, uh, you know, I agree with you. Um, it wasn't a certain, um, uh, you know, mirror of the way that um, uh, that Ange and, and Musket like to play. But um, there are some strands and similarities, but it's certainly not um, 
the you know the kind of player he was um, translating into the kind of football. So I think the yeah the, the local fans are a little bit up in the up in the air. The media are a little bit up in the air um, uh, about it all. Um, there's another couple of rounds to go here before um, he'll get in. He'll have to do the, the quarantine period and, and the the league shuts down for the Olympics. So he'll, in a sense, it's fortunate he'll have um, basically a, a little, you know, basically, well, essentially a, a preseason to to get the the team um, as he wants. You know, I, I think there'll be a few moves he can make in the transfer market as well. But he comes in with a lot of pressure because they've, um, you know, the, the four um, Japanese clubs are off doing the ACL at the moment. They've played a lot of games um, in advance of that tournament. And so, you know, they're, they're out in front. But um, Marinos are now up to second, still with games in hand um, on Kawasaki. You know, win those games, uh, you know, I, I think they're, they're really right on their on their coattails. So um, it, it's a big thing. I mean, you, you don't want to come in and, and take them backwards, but sitting second when you come in with uh, one of Asia's best teams is not the best in front of you. There's not much to go um, in terms of going up either. So, um, yeah, the pressure is going to be on um, straight from day one. This is Box to Box. We're talking to the Asian Games. Scott McIntyre, Kevin Muscat at uh, Yokohama, F. Marinos, uh, about to be announced. Uh, Socceroos playing the Blue Samurai in the final World Cup qualifying amongst another group of top-ranked uh, teams around the world or in the Asian uh, group. Edge, um, what are your thoughts on some of those lesser teams um, in so far as their ability to, to cause a shake-up for the top two spots? Uh, in the Asian qualifying, um, I agree with Scott. Uh, Vietnam, for me, is uh, a very dangerous team. I much would have preferred your mob, Lebanon, uh, mm-hmm. than Vietnam in that group. So that's interesting. I want to ask um, Scott, though, about Arthur Pappas because he's returning, uh, one of Ange Postacoglu's assistants, who you know very well, he's returning to take on a difficult job at Newcastle Jets. We do hear behind the scenes that the uh, APL clubs are going to give Newcastle some cash to really get them going, to prepare them for sale. But um, my question to you, Scott, is the Arthur Pappas that left Australia to go to Japan and and have that experience with Ange versus the Arthur Pappas that's coming back to Australia to coach Newcastle, what can we expect uh, and how much has he changed? Well, I've known Arthur for a long time, um, right back to the days when he was coaching uh, in India, coaching the at that time what was the um, essentially the Indian uh, Olympic team in their domestic competition over there. And I think it's fair to say, you know, as we can say with Ange, um, as we can say with, you know, Pete, um, Peter Klamovsky up at Yamagata as well. You know, these guys all, uh, they're, they're, you know, from the same, um, what, you know, what the Americans call this, the coaching tree, the same, um, you know, underlying philosophy and principles, but they're, you know, in their own ways, their own people. And, and within that, they continue to evolve and um, develop uh, as well. I saw... Um, I think, yeah, all the games that um, Arthur took charge of in, in the brief stint that he had um, here in J3 with Tagashima. And uh, and I think for that uh, brief spell that he did have, you know, in terms of um, uh, match tempo, they were one of the, the more aggressive and, and up-tempo teams in any of the three tiers of Japanese football. So you you know um, basically the kind of football that he's going to play and, um, and, and those underlying principles haven't changed. And that you want to play possession-based football, you want to play with tempo and rhythm, you want to look for the spacing uh, and movement. You want to be aggressive um, out of possession and, and he's got all those qualities and it's fantastic for him um, to get a chance. I mean, it's unfortunate circumstances, you know, with having to return uh, to Australia for family reasons um, uh, that that led to op- this opportunity. Um, yeah, my understanding is there were several clubs that were um, really um, very interested in securing his services right up until the, the last moment when he was appointed by Newcastle. It's a hell of a job. Um, he, he's already made some smart um, decisions with the backroom staff that he's appointed. Some of the player um, uh, announcements over the last couple of days, I think, have been good as well. But 
um, yeah, you guys would know better than me, although I do still follow the A-League closely. But um, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a hell of a job. Um, but he's a fantastic coach, a fantastic young coach. Comes with, um, yeah, really modern, um, progressive footballing philosophies. Um, and, and it's going to be, yeah, fascinating to see how it plays out. Hey, Scotty, thanks again for joining us, mate. We're, we're really grateful for your time as always. Yeah, no worries, anytime. Okay, thanks to our good mate Scotty McIntyre. Okay, right now at Chemist Warehouse, all Synovus vitamins are half price. There's Synovus Zinc Plus, 150 tablets for $8.24. Synovus Fish Oil, 1500 milligrams, 200 capsules, $10.99. And Synovus St. John's Wort, just $8.99. Sale excludes bulk sizes. Plus, you can save 30% off the everyday low price on INC products. There's INC Glutamine for $20.99. INC 1 kilogram plant protein, $27.99. Half price off massage. Crisp bars and 40% off the entire Masashi range. Remember, in addition to visiting your local store, you can click and collect to save time. Order online for delivery by Australia Post and get free shipping on orders over $50. Or call and ask for same day home delivery. Fees and charges may apply. Chemist Warehouse, we know the great savings there every single day. Okay, thank you to our friends from Chemist Warehouse, Mario Routinet, all the crew. Stick around after the break. We are going to talk to Brad Rouse, the CEO of Melbourne City. They're the champions. They've won the grand final. They're the premiers. It's all good at Cityland. Next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio, NTS News, Talk Sport Broadcasting across Australia. We were all... Eagerly anticipating a great grand final on Sunday evening and uh, despite a red card, I think we've still got a great spectacle. We've got a great crowd at Amy Park and one of the teams that's um, that's dared to dream for a long time since it started out as the Melbourne Heart all those years ago was Melbourne City and we're joined by their CEO, Brad Rouse. How are you, Brad? And, of course, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, gents. Really appreciate it. No, I'm uh, doing well. It's uh, nice to be winners. Yeah, it certainly is, mate. Premiership, championship, you can't do any better than that. And, and look, for, for a lot of, of us pundits out there, uh, you know, we've, we've long uh, asked the question of sporting fans in Melbourne who, who don't follow victory in particular. We know that, uh, you know, we've got United now, but, uh, but the, you've got a, a real genuine family club environment, which, uh, which anyone who's been to a city match knows is, uh, is a special place. It's, it's an atmosphere where families can feel comfortable. Um, that's the one thing that, that I saw at the grand final on Sunday evening that I was really proud as a football fan to see. Uh, do you think this is a, a turning point um, in the growth of City as, as a genuinely big club in, in the A-League, which really it should be? Yeah, look, I think it, 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 it's always a, a, a thing that every professional sporting club in the world seeks to find the answers to is how do you get how do you get growth? We know no success is a, a key ingredient to that. Um, another part is you know obviously uh, how you go about do things, how you engage with your fans, uh, what the experience is for every touch point you have with your fans. All those all those things come into the mix and. Um, you know, we've been from our inception in 2010 as Melbourne Heart to start. We've we've been trying to get those things right, and and have had steady growth uh, over the years. But um, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. In terms of there's no sort of lever you can pull to suddenly go from uh, you know six thousand to twelve thousand, eighteen thousand fans. It's 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 been sort of slow, steady, organic growth. But um, certainly having um, success. Um, 
can catapult that. And my experience sort of in 20 years of sport now is the greatest greatest way to get, get to speed with that is to have a, own a period, you know, have sustained success. And you know, a bit like Geelong Footy Club did, did years ago, Richmond are kind of enjoying now in the AFL, um, certainly Manchester City that I'm closer to. Uh, when you've got that sustained success over a period of time, that can that's what can really catapult you up into into great growth. Brad, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to have you here. Some of your listeners might not know that you were involved at Melbourne Heart, so you, you're probably um, in a got a unique perspective to answer my next question, and that is about your coach Patrick Kisnorbo, because um, he he uh, when you talk about sustained success, like you did in your in your last answer, there's there's certain narratives around that, and Patrick is now a narrative. He's such a connected part of the Melbourne mm. City journey. So, can you reflect on his personal journey from, um, you know, the gritty, um, f- uh, you know, European <laughs> pro that came back and yeah. and held the defence together in some challenging times to um, assistant coach, W League coach, and titles with the W League, and and now in the A League. So, it's a, a unique. Um, achievement that he's made. He, he's the first coach to win a W League, A League um, championship <laughs> double, which is not insignificant. So, can you just reflect on his journey with the club and, and what he means to the club? Because he is um, a big part of the Melbourne City narrative, isn't he? Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really pleased you pointed Paddy's story out because, I mean, PK started as, as you just mentioned, he started off as a player and also was a captain for, for us during Melbourne Heart and he epitomised kind of everything his club stood for the time. He was gritty, he was tough. Um, he, you know, almost relished the chance to be the underdog and um, and I remember, you know, our very first year, we'd only been around for a couple of months and we played our very first derby and no one thought we had a chance in hell of winning it. We won that first one. It was, um, you know, so I, I look back and that's my fondest moment, seeing the look of the faces and the joy that um, some of the original stuff of players had at that time and, and Paddy was... Paddy was a monumental, you know, he's influential, he's, um, he wears his heart in his sleeve, he's passionate. And, um, you know, that resonated with all our players in the beginning with Melbourne Heart and certainly resonated with the fans and the rest of the club. So, um, yeah, he, he really uh, lives and breathes and eats football. And um, at the end of his career, playing career, he was um, really, really desperate to getting into coaching and you know, he, he was happy to pay his dues. He started off as an academy coach and, um, you know, found success fairly early with winning titles in the academy and then went to W League and um, we had an incredible team that uh, won four titles out of five and he was he was part of that success and his next evolution was to get involved with the A-League team with the first team and um, he had uh, an incredible leads with Eric Mombert, who who um, I think was the perfect person to be around as, as Paddy was trying to go to the next level, um, and it was almost the perfect union, you know, with almost like the uh, Yoda and the, and the buddy <laughs> Jedi with with um, the, wis- the the years of wisdom and uh, and it was the perfect pairing um, to allow Paddy to get to that next level to be ready to, to take on the top job. This is Box to Box on Nine Radio, NTS News Talk Sport. We're talking to CEO of Melbourne City, Brad Rouse, off the back of their grand final and, and premiership victories this season. Brad, um, 
I hope you've had a chance to have a couple of beers, but I know knowing um, <laughs> the, the dynamic world of, of, of professional sport, you're looking ahead to the future. And I want to ask you about the, the future in Melbourne's southeast and what it can mean for the club. Um, we, we know that um, La Trobe University and your um, out in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, your base has been much lauded as being uh, one of the benchmark training facilities in the A League. But you're now moving to the southeast of Melbourne, and it sort of sets up. Um, Melbourne's geographic nature of, of football um, uniquely now with you guys in the southeast and mm. obviously United in the western uh, victory probably in the inner inner component. But tell me um, from your perspective and for our listening audience right around Australia how significant this move is and and what it's going to mean for your club. Yeah, look, it was decision didn't come easily because one of those things, uh, Michael, that we you know you've. You've spent 10 years of uh, time out at La Trobe University, been an incredible, wonderful partner. Um, and uh, it's it, it been absolutely perfect. We've spent a lot of time um, in the north. But um, one, of, one of the things that was it was unique and interesting to us, um, you know, that when the A-League started, Melbourne Victory obviously had that five years to get their, get a, a foothold into, into the football business in, in Victoria. And they didn't really have a geographic territory so they had uh, we, we did some mapping in the early days I remember um, and and they had you know the heat zones all over Melbourne in different suburbs and and so for us to come in uh, we pretty much did the same and and uh, we we basically competed and contested they had a, obviously a big start on us and with a large membership base but we uh, focused on all different areas of Melbourne we because we were based in the north um, a lot of our community work, a lot of our work with young players happened in that area, and, and we obviously developed a, a strong affiliation in that area. But uh, and, and and that's something we don't want to switch off. What what's really happened for us is that um, we were faced with the prospect of having to spend uh, you know money where we were to look at how do we future proof ourselves because we've gone from one team in the inception of Melbourne Heart to ten teams now, and obviously with W League as you mentioned before, but plus all the um, academy teams. And we were really running out of space. We just didn't have enough pitch space. So the, the prospects were we um, did a major uh, redevelopment at La Trobe. Uh, but part of that process also, we wanted to look at um, what was perhaps outside um, that area just to make sure that uh, we were making the best decision for the club's future. And we took a 30-year lens on it um, to see, you know, what are the facilities, what the requirements we'll need in 30 years' time. And um, we were also had kept one eye on the whole Team 11 bid because we thought that was a pretty compelling and strong bid that um, when they were vying for the third A-League licence and um, because, you know, there was some key key fundamentals that, that really interested us. There was only one other professional sporting team uh, in that whole region. It's an incredibly large region uh, and it's all but also been one of the fastest areas in Australia, growing areas in the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, you've got Dandenong is the uh, biggest multicultural city in Australia. Uh, and all through those areas like, uh, you know, Casey and Cranbourne and uh, further out, they've been there's literally just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of households and a lot of them are new Australians, young families, uh, and football's the number one code. So we didn't just jump into it. We did a lot of independent research and due diligence and um, it, it – you know, stacked up on multiple levels, obviously, for uh, future-proofing our sales facilities um, and moving into a demographic where we can potentially own a geography. Um, but notwithstanding, we, you know, we, 
have done a lot of work with our uh, not-for-profit city in the community and uh, football schools and things like that in other areas of Melbourne, and we'll continue to do those. But um, it'll be, you know, nice to, to really uh, get a foothold in that southeast of Melbourne. Brad Rouse, it's uh, been great having you on the show. Uh, premiership, championship, uh, these are exciting times for Melbourne City as a club. You've got uh, young players heading off to the Olympics. You've got uh, Jamie McLaren just signed on for an extended deal and says he wants to be a club legend. Uh, it's all positive, mate. Now, what, now all we need is victory to get competitive again so we can have a proper derby, mate, and um, and maybe you can enjoy, uh, you know, I shouldn't say beating up on them, mate, but, uh, you know, that's what's been happening lately. No, we actually need them competitive. It's actually great for everyone. <laughs> everyone wants a derby that's close. So, uh, mm. we, and I think they won't take long to rebound. I think they'll be there very quickly. Michael. Thanks, Brad, for coming on our program. Uh, it's been great, and we wish you all the best with the move out to the southeast. And uh, and uh, I've got a bit of an inkling that uh, Melbourne City might uh, just be at the top of the tree for quite a while. So good luck with all your projects, and uh, we'll see you around. Fantastic, Mike. Thanks, guys. No worries, Brad Rouse, CEO of Melbourne City. Okay, stick around. A big second hour coming up on Box to Box. Max Rushton, we're going to talk about England. We're going to talk more Euros. Stick around after the break on Box to Box. Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Welcome back to Box to Box, a bumper second hour, second edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly Max Rushton from The Guardian and Talk Sport. Really looking forward to having a yarn with Max. He is a very passionate England man and very excited about uh, this Ukraine matchup over the weekend. Is football coming home? Let's ask Max when we talk to him. We'll talk more of the Euros with Dino and Dell and wrap it up with stoppage time. But Willem, you've got to stack more news. I do, Rob. Socceroos and Matildas Central for the Green and Gold Army to start. Make sure you're in the stands supporting the Socceroos and Matildas as soon as possible at a major major tournament by signing up to the Green and Gold Army's mailing list. It's free to do. It takes only two seconds and it's not possible to regret it. Sign up at ggatravel.com.au. Injury prevented Brad Smith from appearing uh, for the Socceroos in Q8, but he's gone back to the US and has slotted straight back into the dominant Seattle Sounders side. In the Western Conference, Seattle are undefeated after 11 matches. Smith has played in all of them and has added two assists to his three early season goals in recent weeks. Staying in the US, Chloe Legazza made her second appearance for Kansas City in the National Women's Soccer League, while in Norway, Tegan Micah looks to have made the number one spot at Sandvik in her own, although she'll now relinquish it for the Olympics. As, uh, back to the Jens Croatian Giants, Dinamo Zagreb have stumped up 1.5 million euros for Denny Juric, who will join them on a multi-year deal from Sibenek. He'll spend the first year of the deal back on loan at Sibenek, where he scored 11 goals in 32 in the Croatian top flight last season. And Adam Taggart has his first goal for at Osaka, netting their equaliser in their come-from-behind win over Kitchi in the Asian Champions League. Let's head over to the Copper America now. The quarterfinals are locked in. Bolivia and Venezuela have been the unfortunate sides not to progress from the group stage. Saturday morning, Australian time, we'll see Peru play Paraguay and Brazil play Chile, while the next morning, Uruguay will play Colombia and Argentina will face Ecuador. Michael Lionel Messi made his 148th appearance for La Albi Celeste this week against Bolivia. That put him past Javier Mascarano for the most appearances for the national side. They celebrated with a 4-1 win in which Messi scored two goals and had an assist. Lionel Messi has been the story of Copa America for me. He is, uh, at 34 years of age, just uh, cruising through that competition. His class is oozing, and uh, he's well and truly good. The the big standout game for me is Uruguay and Colombia. Colombia had that very unlucky loss 
to Brazil, which would have, um, you know, potentially they could have won or drew, draw that game, which would have meant they were, were close to finish second. So Uruguay has the difficult game. Um, for me, the others uh, should go on uh, on form. Brazil should be way too strong for Chile. Argentina will dispose of Ecuador, and it's a bit of a toss of the coin between Peru and Paraguay. Probably Paraguay uh, just, which means that we're on a collision course for uh, a Brazil-Argentina Final, in my view, it's uh, it's exciting times for people that follow South American football. Now the groups out of the way, uh, the the big stuff starts. So this is the final trophy uh, to complete the the Messi collection, isn't it? He's never won a major men's trophy at the top level of Copa America or World Cup or or something of that stature. So this is this is the one that he's desperate for. So he's playing like a man possessed. Yeah, look, um, um, he's just. So much better than everybody else, and mm. you've only got to watch uh, some of the games to realise that he's uh, he's a, he's a standout. He's still got it. A couple of key points also from the uh, the past week. Last week when we spoke, Uruguay were in danger. They were sitting in fourth in their group, but Edinson Cavani has scored goals in their last two games and made sure that they are through. So as mentioned, they play uh, they don't play Bolivia, Who Colombia. They play, Michael? they play Colombia and Brazil as well. They've got to be looking pretty dangerous. They've scored ten goals. From nine separate goal scorers, only Neymar's netted twice. That's a pretty fair spread. They're looking quite dangerous as well. Yeah, they run an unbeaten run. It's pretty significant. So Neymar is in good form. They'll they'll be way too strong. For, for me, it's a Brazil and Argentina final, um, and uh, the Uruguay who who haven't never not made the semi-finals of Copa America. They've got a slippery game against Colombia who are not a bad team. Staying in that part of the world or over that half of the world I should say uh, this is a brewing story Michael that you alerted Rob and I to a couple of weeks ago I've been looking to get it into the show uh, and it could be it could be quite the story as time goes on. The MLS and Mexico's Liga MX have agreed to play a cross-border all-star game in August the latest move in a growing partnership that could see the leagues emerge in the future A merge is seen as mutually beneficial by Don Garber and Mikel Ariola, the commissioner and president of the respective leagues with the US hoping to penetrate the Latino market and the Mexican clubs hoping to professionalise their operations further. Now the US has a, a Latino market as we know, a huge Latino market with a, a latent appetite for the local game. Uh, a few stats to, uh, to prove that point. US broadcaster Univision last season showed 130 Liga MX, so Mexican matches on its Spanish speaking networks they averaged 470,000 viewers per match. Uh, that's over half what the MLS averaged for their regular season matches uh, in their own country and we'll look at the uh, recent cup finals as as well, Michael, in the US, the Mexican Cup final drew 3.7 million viewers, while the MLS Cup, the local competition, drew just the 1 million. So you can see you can see why the MLS would be keen to engage uh, with the Mexican League. Yeah, the Mexican clubs have much deeper histories, and obviously the migrant communities uh, from that part of the world that are in the United States are all have loyalty to their Mexican club grants. Some of these clubs, you know, Mon- Monterrey, for example, Mexico City, they... they um, you know, they're 100 years old, you know, so they have really strong, deep connections into um, their communities and they've got big supporter bases in the US. So um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And the MLS is an extension to that, Willem. They're going to launch a development league uh, to slot in between the MLS and uh, what they call the academies, effectively um, almost uh, taking on the US college system for that key um, development um, uh, development uh, pathway and they're launching that in 2022 with 20 teams so it's expected that uh, that the MLS uh, clubs will make up the majority of those teams and that'll be another uh, plank in the development pathway that's going to assist the American game develop because um, uh, America uh, at international level in the men's game at least has uh, not been performing very well. 
We've got so much international football going on, guys, but it's not long until the Premier League will be back upon us. It's been musical chairs in the managerial ranks. Rafa Benitez, he's about to become just the second man after Edward William Barclay to have managed at both Liverpool and Everton. Elsewhere, Tottenham have signed former Wolves boss Nuno Espirito Santo on a two-year deal. Uh, His first big task is, of course, going to be convincing Harry Kane to stay. And Crystal Palace appear on the verge of announcing Patrick Vieira as their manager on a three-year deal. Rob, what do you make of it all? Well, Barclay, of course, was the very first coach of uh, of Everton when they uh, were uh, the only side in Liverpool when when they broke away and and moved to Goodison Park. But uh, look, uh, the the Benitez decision is, uh, you know, it's a controversial one at Everton, obviously, because of the remarks he made when he was with Liverpool for six years, obviously won famously that 2005 Champions League title and referred to Everton as a little club. Uh, so, uh, you know, long memories, uh, Merseyside. Uh, but he loves living at the Wirral. His, uh, his family are uh, uh, from, uh, well, well and truly established in the area. I think uh, the sensible people who follow the Toffees will uh, will put that to one side. I mean, the idiots putting up banners out the front of the wrong person's house. Um, as it turns out, they thought they were putting a, a banner uh, saying he wasn't welcome or something kind of death threat, uh, put it out the front of the wrong person's house. So I think uh, Benitez is uh, is a good pick for Everton. And, and, and look at uh, Nuno Espirito Santo. I, I was surprised that Wolves got rid of him. I mean, he got him promoted. They, they finished seventh in their, their first two uh, um uh, seasons in the Premier League in the top flight, and then had that difficult season with a stack of injuries as well. So I think he'll be, he'll be good for uh, for Spurs and uh, Patrick Vieira. Well, you know somebody had to replace uh, Roy, um, and uh, you know to just keep them in the top flight and competitive. And I've got a quick Euro story to finish, Rob, before we get onto our chat with Max Rushton. The Euros exit, that is of course France's Euros exit, has sparked angst amongst the ranks. Adrian Rabiot's mother Veronique has clashed with the Pogba and Mbappe families in the stands at Bucharest, of course, as they were bundled out on penalties to Switzerland. Ms. Rabiot fumed at the Pogba's after Paul gave the ball away for a Swiss goal and later asked the Mbappes how Killian could be so arrogant. Pelé has uh, meanwhile told uh, Mbappe to keep his head up following his penalty miss, tweeting that tomorrow is a new journey. We've all seen the ugly parent at uh, local sports, but surely at the Euros, that's a whole different uh, different matter altogether. Well, Rabiot had a hard enough time getting back in the squad after his own behaviour where he refused to stay with the squad in the, in the last World Cup and uh, and play, stay with the, the train-on uh, group. And his mother is uh, is his manager as well. So, yeah, I was listening to Max's, uh, Max Rushton's podcast and uh, and Barry Glendening, uh, his co-host, was saying he could just imagine N'Golo Kante's parents sitting there with a rug over their knees drinking a cup of tea from a flask, just being polite trying to sort everything out, but uh, yeah, no, ridiculous. All right, I mentioned Max Rushton. We've been looking forward to talking to Max for a long time now. Uh, we all enjoy his work on his podcast and on TalkSport. He's a passionate England man, and uh, he's going to join us after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal Yes, this is Box to Box on 9 Radio, NTS News, Talk Sport. We've been loving the Euros since they started. It just continues to get better. But uh, from an English point of view, there was no better game than the win over Germany. It took uh, over 50 years to get it done, but they got it done at Wembley the other day. And our next guest, Max Rushton, is as big a fan. But before we introduce Max, I just want you to have a little bit of a listen to Max's reaction at the end of the game. Max, mate, I was listening to your podcast, uh, of course, the <laughs> Guardian Sports Weekly, mate, uh, with the great Barry Glendening and the rest of the team. If, if our listeners haven't listened, mate, they've got to. It is the best sports podcast going around. Um, how are you, Max? 
Yeah, I'm good. You, you know, you say um, it, it, it's taken 50 years to, to beat Germany. Um, it, do you know, it felt like 50 years that Thomas Muller was <laughs> running through on goal. And, and, I, and I, I've said this before, but honestly, the atmosphere at, at Wembley on, uh, I forget, I don't know what day it is now, but I, I, whatever day it was, um, I think it's the best atmosphere I've ever seen for an England game. I've been to quite a lot of England games before I even worked in, in this industry or, or, mm. or did anything professionally around football. And I haven't always loved it. You know, and there's obviously lots of stories of, of, you know, England fans not always being great. And But but it was an amazing atmosphere there. And the noise was incredible for, for the whole game. And I only really noticed how good it was when Muller went through and there was you know, 42,000 people collectively silenced by this absolute panic <laughs> and this intake of breath. And like, I, you sort of inhaled, you were like, you gasped, and then you realised that Muller was still running and you were like, I've got to, I, I can't inhale again because I've already inhaled and I can't <laughs> exhale until this ball has either gone in or gone wide and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And when he put when he put it wide, you thought, okay, this this could be our day. And England's, England's tournament record is, pretty bad you know like for a team we talk about it so much but Southgate I think has won three knockout games in his tenure as England manager that's more than the previous 10 tournaments or something like we're ostensibly we're really not very good at football <laughs> and 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 yet we find ourselves we've been dogged and we've been determined and we've been tactically astute and now we play Ukraine and it's far enough away for me to not be worrying about it but you know I you can't relax as an England fan. You know, you, you just sort of think, well, we should win this game, but I, 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 I'm sort of, part of me is confident, and part of me thinks we should definitely win, and part of me just is just in fear, like permanent fear. That's what being an England fan is. Max, let's uh, talk about those last 20 minutes, because the game, you were there, it appeared to be drifting a little, and of course, Gareth mm. shuffled his deck a little bit, and uh, Grealish came on. What do you put it down to, that last 20 minutes where England... Um, seem to lift their game and, and, and manage to grab those two goals? It's a really good question because uh, so much has been written about it and, and it, what's so interesting is you know we, we, we work out our, our sort of narrative after the result and that game could have gone either way and I don't think it was a brilliant game of football um, for parts of it it was very cagey neither side was playing particularly well I didn't think but I do think that um, and Bayern and Ronnie was just from the Guardian we're sort of talking about this now that, that England spotted a problem if you look at how Germany conceded their goals it is down the right hand side a lot of the time and I think Saka had an excellent game I really do and I thought Sterling was great but when Grealish came on it moved Sterling to the other side Grealish sort of somehow managed to free up Harry Kane Harry Kane looked he sort of moved better and and had so much more impact on the game in that 20 minutes when Grealish was there on the pitch I think that made a difference. But I, look, you can't discount what happened in the first 70 minutes is the, you know, how tired players were getting. And it was, it was cagey. And I think what's really interesting, actually, is that England fans were patient. And that, that's so rare. Like, it's so rare. They were starting to get a bit edgy. Uh, you know, there was one point where, you know, England kept the ball and were going down the right-hand side. And then they went backwards and passed the ball backwards. And there was this clamour all the time to just kick the ball forwards. Like every time you get it, and sometimes you just need to keep the ball. You know, it's a, when you play that key pass, that's when you risk losing possession. And Germany proved that you really could, they could 
if they won possession quickly, they could get in behind quite quickly. You know, they counted quite quickly. You know, Werner had that chance in the first half. So I think tactically Gareth Southgate got it right. That's not to say it was a masterclass because the game could have gone either way. But I think Grealish did make a difference when he came on. And that doesn't mean he should definitely start in the next game. I think he's been managed really well. He's a phenomenal talent. England have phenomenal talent up, you know, in the attacking area, especially in the wide area. And I think something that has been brilliant from Southgate is to not to listen to people like me and, you know, <laughs> ex-pros and pundits who just, you'll hear this phrase so much, I don't know if you've used it, you know, sort of setting, set them free. You know, play all the attacking players and set them free. You know, you need to, you don't win tournaments that way. And that doesn't mean England will win this tournament, but I think tactically he's got it right. And I think, you know, you you have to play some defence. You need to play some defenders in football, right? You know, we all know that, even if we get more excited by the attacking players. Yeah, with, with Gareth, you know, he's in that position where, you know, effectively any game that he loses, it could be his last game as the England manager, certainly before the semi-finals. You'd probably say that would keep him the job. But it seems to me that, um, not just tactically, but he just seems to be a great man-manager and he's been getting some performances out of players like, Raheem Sterling, who not necessarily had a great Premier League season. Uh, Luke Shaw looked like Lionel Messi in the last 20 minutes, marauding <laughs> through midfield and, and, and was influential in the two goals. It, as an England fan, do you kind of warm to that with Gareth? And just he, he does seem to have good judgment. Do you know what I think is really interesting about Southgate is there is absolutely no doubt that he has done everything right off the pitch. He's like a statesman. You know, he's a, he's a better statesman than the current leader of the country, he has spoken so well about um, you know the, that small section of England fans that booed taking the knee. He's spoken up against that. He's spoken up brilliantly about the diversity of the squad, about for every single aspect of what an England manager should do in support of his players and of um, uh, and in trying to explain to, to England fans you know what it means to those players. And I think he has done every part of that brilliantly. I think the question marks, they do still exist and, and, you know, less so as this tournament progresses about how good a football manager he is and how good he is in those pivotal moments. You know, in that semi-final against Croatia, did we make the right changes? Um, and tournament football is, you know, it's so hard, as you say, it's sort of arbitrary. You lose one game, whether through luck or judgment or what, and you might lose your job. I think his job is safe now, actually, regardless of what happens against Ukraine. It would be a disaster to go out, but I, I think it's safe. But what we have seen is, is a bravery from Southgate. And not a bravery in the sense of playing sort of brave attacking football. A bravery in actually playing quite cagey defensive football. Because had England not got through the group, and that could have happened, or had England gone out to Germany playing this kind of defensive football, he would get slaughtered. If, for example, Ukraine played wing back, so they did certainly for part of the last game. If we go with three at the back again, we are a technically superior team to Ukraine. Honestly, people on social media will be furious about us not going forward at the back and playing more attackers on Saturday night. If we go out playing defensive football, he'll get hammered, whether that's the quarterfinal, the semifinal, or losing the final. So I think it's really brave to play this kind of football because if we go down in flames and we lose 4-3 and all these attackers are sprawled out everywhere, you know, the narrative will be, look, he gave everyone a go. But what, what, what he's looked at, and he's looked at from you know, years ago is, how do you win a tournament? This is what I want. My, my aim is to win a tournament. How do I do it? 
you do it by actually being quite stilted and quite boring. Even if you talk to French football experts, it sounds counterintuitive to say France aren't interesting. But you know, when they won the World Cup, they won it with Giroud instead of there's Marvin Dembele playing up. You know, they, they played a, a less interesting centre forward. I mean, I love Giroud. I think he's you know he's a great player. But but they were sort of tactically defensive, even with these amazing players around. And so I think that shows an incredible bravery to not listen to the noise, to switch everything off. And as you say, as a man manager, he, he talks to... Adam Lallana wrote a piece in The Times today, um, the former Liverpool Southampton. He's a Brighton still Lallana. But, you know, he was in a few of Southgate's squads. And he spoke about how Southgate speaks to them like adults. And he, he's on their level, right? And I think that's really hard for football managers. You know, they're normally old and they're talking to 22-year-olds. And I think you see that with managers who get older and older, Mourinho, for example, but suddenly you just can't quite connect with these people. And Southgate really connects with that squad. There's no doubt about it. He, it, From everything you read and everything you learn from the players, he makes it a collective unit. I think there was one tournament where he didn't get any game time and he remembers that as a player. And so he's really conscious of those players who aren't getting in the starting 11, even the ones that aren't getting in the 23 that you can name on the day. And I think all those things like are essential if you want to win the tournament. It doesn't mean we will. I mean, none of this does, but I think he's, he's done everything right so far and he's done everything. Look, Southgate out was trending on the morning of the Croatia game because Kieran Trippier was playing left back and it worked perfectly. You know, he's not listening to the nonsense and I think that is a, I think it's a key part of probably being a human now is to not listen to what happens on social media. But, but for him to do it how he wants to do it and if we do go out, it will be on his terms, not, oh, I... I was forced to play Grealish and Fogan and Mount because everybody said I had to. Yeah, excellent analysis, Max. This is Box to Box. We're talking to Max Rushton from the Guardians Football Weekly Podcast, of course, and Talk Sport, one of our favourite pundits in uh, world football. Max, uh, always interesting to listen to you on the radio and your podcast, let alone on our very own one. Edge, um, jump in. Max, um, you're talking to an Australian football audience who's really connected and interested in the fan culture. You you mentioned about the English fans um, and the and the atmosphere in the stadium. Um, Australian football fans with our international team, the Socceroos, have been on the end of some pretty average behaviour in places in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia or or in South America, Uruguay, when we've had uh, big uh, FIFA World Cup qualification matches. Um, I just noted the response to the German national anthem by the English fans, and I know our audience will be interested in your perspective on on that, the culture of that, and and what what were you thinking when that was happening in the stadium? Uh, look, I think it's really tedious. Um, I, you know, it's embarrassing, and it was deafening, like that the booing of the national anthem. I think it's I think it's not that is not just an English football fan phenomenon. There are lots of sets of fans that boo the outcome. Um, and I, I'm not exactly sure, you know, the, the, the rivalry between, and I don't, it's, England fans don't just do it to Germany. You know, there are, and every time we play Germany, and it was less this time than previous times, people get whipped up into some sort of frenzy about singing about, you know, talking about the war and, you know, all these very tedious things that were incredibly long time ago. And, you know, fans singing about, German bombers and things. And uh, there was less of that during the game. I think the booing of the anthem is really boring. You know, I find it very disrespectful. Um, I'm 42 now. I think a lot of the people in the ground are, you know, you know, have had drunk quite a lot of drink and are in their 20s and probably aren't really thinking about it in those terms and are just going along with whatever 
person is, you know, whoever's next to them is doing that and they think, oh, I might as well do that. What I think was um, slightly reassuring and not totally reassuring is when the England players took the knee, and this has been a big debate during this tournament and, it, and it, in the first two warm-up games, obviously these players have been taking the knee during uh, lockdowns. There's no fans. And, um, and when they took the knee in the warm-up games that were in Middlesbrough, and the first game, it was really booed. It was kind of, it was so depressing. And it happened again, and it happened at Wembley. But the ovation that sort of overcame that was deafening as well. And that, that gives me some sense of optimism on that sense. And I think that's a, I have much bigger problem with booing taking the knee than I do booing the anthem. I don't think booing the anthem is a very clever thing to do. I think it's really disrespectful. But I think it, I think some people would argue it's part of football tribalism that just exists, you know. And it doesn't happen at rugby matches for some reason, but it does happen at football matches. I don't advocate it at all. I think it's, you know, I'd love it to be respectful and silent. And I love that other countries can manage that. But I think that is of, of, of less importance than the people who are booed taking the knee. And the and, and, and it was a distinctly, you know, there was, there was a, enough people booing taking the knee that you could hear it. But the ovation that happened straight away saying, you don't represent us was was much louder and, I, and that that gives me some hope in a sort of pretty depressing state of affairs I would say. Yeah no, great answer Max because you know we're all on the same page with you and, and I just think the ultimate irony of all this with the um, the booing of the taking of the knee is that the, the, the star goal scorer so far has been Raheem Sterling which is uh, just great well, uh, they've got to cheer him so uh, whether they like well, it or Well absolutely not. right and, and I think what's really interesting is that the whole debate about that is oh you know the, the, the argument or the, the, the argument that people put forward is you know we want to take politics out of sport and then well then if you're booing an anthem I mean that's you know an anthem is a political thing you can't say it isn't if you start singing about the war well that's political so mm. so the hypocrisy within that is is so obvious it's not always easy to to communicate that to those people that are still that are still booing well, Max, let's finish on a high. It's not very often, okay. as you well know, that you're going to hear Australians wish you all the best in a sporting uh, event, <laughs> but we do. No, I don't. Uh, so, uh, mate, we love it. Um, I was born in 1966, and uh, I've watched all the black and white footage uh, um, of Sir Alf Ramsey's uh, heroes and uh, and uh, seen all of the the, uh, the the pain that you've been through, mate. So, I, I hope for your sake uh, that uh, that you get the result on the weekend. We'll be getting up uh, nice and early, 5 a.m. Sunday morning, our time as you know, and um, it will hopefully be uh, be good news for, for England and uh, and for you and uh, and everyone else over there, Max. Speak to yourself, yeah, Rob. Yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. Did you hear that? You know, you know what's interesting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say what's interesting is I, I absolutely support the Socceroos, right? I really yeah. want the Australian soccer team to do well. You know, I've, I've watched that penalty shootout, you know, Aloisi scoring that penalty yeah, so yeah. many Aloisi. times and just that moment. Absolutely beautiful. Mm. And isn't it strange that I would, I would, you know, I absolutely want the Socceroos to do well unless they're playing England. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, when Rishabh yeah. Pant was scoring those <laughs> runs against the Aussies, I couldn't have been happier, you know. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's very strange how he did score. Okay, you're staying your work on that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Max. Uh, beautiful, mate. Hey, um, thanks. And Max, we'd love to have you back again. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Yeah, brilliant. We wanted to have you on for a long time, mate. So thank you. Good luck. And, um, and mate, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Max Russian. All right, stick around. More Europe after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. Yes, this is Box to Box. <laughs> what a great chat that was with Max. Sure, you know, some passionate fans around the world, but there's no bigger fan of England as uh, an English journalist as well. Really looking forward to this weekend's matches, but we've got more to talk about. We want to reflect on those round of 16 matches, make some selections for these quarterfinals that are coming up in uh, in our next couple of segments. But before we do, is your home running out of space? Well, you know I'm going to say call Storage King, don't you? If you're decluttering, you're moving, you're renovating, downsizing, creating a home office. Not everybody's created the home office yet. Some people are in the uh, kid's bedroom or the spare bedroom and it looks like an absolute uh, dog's breakfast. Well, you can create a nice home office and you don't have to get rid of everything. You can just go to your local Storage King. They've got the answer. Go to storageking.com.au. They will give you back the space you need and you can store your stuff safely, affordably. We've got a crack team of storage professionals. They'll help organise it all. That is our friends at Storage King. Storageking.com.au. All right, gentlemen, we've spoken to Max. Uh, we want to reflect on what was an absolute cracking round of 16. Well, Derek, sort of talk us through the, the highlights. Um, you know, where do you start? There was uh, there were two, two of the best matches in the history of the tournament, but um, lots to be entertained by. Yeah, I think we'll start at Wembley. I know we covered it in detail with, with Max and... England ending that 55-year wait for a knockout tie victory. But I'm keen just to get Dino's take on it as someone that was there in 96 in Wembley Stadium and how you felt. How, what were your emotions like, Dean, with that game? And, you know, why did England get it done this time? It still feels like a little bit like yesterday. If you go to the semi-final, um, which is obviously the one that uh, stuck out was, you know, it, it goes to, I mean, we played really well that night and realistically should have won the game during the, you know, the normal, I thought the normal, um, you know, 90 minutes and then it went to extra time and then it went to penalties. And then as we all know, poor old Gareth uh, ended up taking the last one and wasn't to be. So I think, you know, we talked on off air just before we started about the fact that Gareth, as you know, most probably carried that for the whole of his time, which is really sad when you think about it. But I think there's a real big opportunity now to get those demons and extinguish them once and for all. And if he is going to uh, continue this journey, he will need, be, need to beat Ukraine uh, in Rome. And uh, Edge, I suppose you're our de facto Eastern European expert at the moment, the, the one two one over Sweden at a pretty lifeless Hamden Park. But what do you think about this Ukrainian team? Can they give England any trouble? I think they can uh, give England some trouble because they're a, a plucky team. Um, they haven't performed with any great um, flair, have they? But they've got the job done and uh, it was a difficult game against Sweden. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed the game. It was tense. It was a traditional knockout uh, fixture at an at a international tournament. So, you know, we're at this stage of the tournament now where anything is possible and a smash-and-grab routine by Ukraine, especially in Rome, um, is significant. And the Eastern Bloc countries who were looking a bit uh, shaky during the group phase, um, a couple of them have got through. So um, that's something to uh, consider in the scope of uh, European football. One of your other favourite uh, people, Kylian Mbappe, didn't cover himself in glory and what was called Magic Monday, two fabulous games. I'll get you, Edge, to talk about the France game and we'll cross to Rob for Spain. But obviously, um, Switzerland 3, France, France 3. What a fantastic game of football! Brilliant goals and Swiss coming out on penalties. Give us the give us the downloads. 
Well, the download is when you're two, two goals up with nine minutes to play, you should close out the game, shouldn't you? Especially when you've got the talent that France have. No wonder the uh, parents in the grandstand were were bluing. Um, uh, for me, though, um, I made the prediction that Kylian Mbappe was going to um, take the tournament a lot. I think he, he played very, very well, but he'll be remembered for missing the penalty and the forlorn look on his face afterwards. It was a fantastic comeback by Switzerland. They've got some talent. Uh, but how about some of the goals? What about Benzema's um, second goal and also uh, Pogba? Um, what a strike to uh, put them three-one in front. So, um, for me, it, what's, it's what could have been for France. But I feel a bit, I feel a bit jaded. I feel a bit depressed, uh, Derek, because I had Group F through this tournament, and, and my teams have simply evaporated. The group of death is, uh, is is extinct, unfortunately, as you rightly say. Well done, the Swiss. Oh, brilliant penalties in the shootout. Arsenal's Granite Xhaka, the much maligned Granite Xhaka, man of the match uh, in that game too. Rob, an even potentially more thrilling game was Spain 5, Croatia 3. And you were, you were covering the Spain group, so I want to come to you on this. And Alvaro Morata, who's had all sorts of stick thrown at him, uh, came out as the hero. Yeah, he did, didn't he? And it was, uh, you know, it was such a, an eerily similar result earlier uh, in the morning our time uh, when uh, Croatia came back with two goals in the the final, uh, well, the, not the final five minutes. The uh, the equaliser was two minutes into uh, stoppage time in in regulation. So, you know, the the Span- Spanish looked like they had it all covered. But I mean, the uh, the, the most uh, bizarre moment of that ma- match was, of course, the uh, the Unai Simon uh, uh, back pass uh, moment in goals where he. He just misses at the ball with his foot and concedes the goal. What was he doing, Rob? Oh, I've got no idea. He was just standing there and uh, he just had a, a brain explosion and the ball just sort of rolled past his foot. And, uh, you know, he's gone from a light life in a parallel universe. His life is ruined. He moves to a, become a hermit somewhere in South America, never to be seen again. Uh, in this lifetime, he, he he's part of a winning squad that goes through to uh, the, the quarterfinals of, of the Euros and he's throwing his shirt into the crowd and he's he's one of the the heroes but as uh, you said Derek uh, the uh, the Spanish managed to get themselves uh Back uh, under control in uh, in. Yeah, they're scoring some goals, Rob. Yeah, they are, and uh, Murata was uh, was key to that. So, look, I said last week that they're just sort of motoring. We know that they've got the experience. The country knows how to win tournaments after winning the the uh, the, the three big tournaments over that period of time. This is not the same uh, quality of squad, but I just don't think we can count Spain out just yet. I think that they are a genuine contender all the way. I, I'm predicting an Italy England final, but uh, n- nothing would surprise me here on. Um, the way that Spain have motored into the tournament. Dino, coming back to you on Wales, seems like a while ago now. There. It does. 4-0 uh, humbling by, by Denmark, everyone's favourite team. <laughs> Wales would have been realistic about their chances in this tournament, but they'll be bitterly disappointed at a 4-0 scoreline, won't they? Yeah, look, I, look, and I don't want to take anything away from Denmark. I mean, obviously the situation with... With you know the the start of the tournament for them has been horrific, uh, you know, and having to deal with that um, through that through the whole process. So I think a lot of I think a lot of the world has like really gone well. If whatever country I come from, the one I want to do well is Denmark, and it, it felt like everybody seems to want them to do really really well, which I can totally understand. But from a Wales point of view, one nil down, um, and there's a ball knocked into uh, keeper Moore gets absolutely hammered, no ball, no nothing, and they counter, and that's 2-0. And for me, that was 
that was the clincher. If there was, you know, if one nil, if Wales could have got to half time at one nil, they would have felt like they were in the game. But when that goal went in, uh, that really most probably was, you know, that was that was the kicking they didn't really need, and they really never recovered even in the second half. I think Wales can be proud of the the, the account of themselves they gave. I think reaching the last sixteen is a good milestone for them, yeah. and I still think they can look at that and, and, and take a lot of credit from it. Uh, wrapping up the other ones, gents, because I know that the uh, finishing line is fast approaching. Of course, um, Belgium knocked out uh, Portugal. So, yeah, the group uh, Group F, um, the final team that could have gone through there, didn't. And uh, another hazard lighting up the tournament, Torgan, 1-0 to Belgium. And look, uh, along with Italy, the, uh, the real main threat to this tournament, the Belgians just going about their, their business um, gradually. Uh, Rob Namecheck, uh, Italy there. We'll maybe talk about their prospects a little more in stoppage time, but of course they beat beat Austria, um, got it done, bit of a scare, but they got it done one nil. And uh, Willem, unfortunately for your Orange, you know, didn't quite work out a two nil defeat and um, Schick again uh, lighting up the tournament with his razor sharp finishing, but. What do you think about what do you think about the Netherlands? Are you disappointed, Willem? A little bit, Derek. The game turned on a minute of madness, didn't it? Daniel Marlon threw one on one with the keeper. Should have done a lot better with that ball goes down the other end and Matthias de Ligt gave away uh, the handball. And it, yeah, it all turned very quickly against the Dutch. It felt for me throughout the tournament like they were a side that was always building towards bigger challenges and, and weren't you know, weren't challenged in the moment and because they hadn't had those sort of little those little tests along the way, all of a sudden when it did turn against them it was all it was all too much. I think it seems a bit funny to say, given Marlon missed that opportunity, but I thought they were probably a team that was going to be better later in the tournament when they had to defend a little bit more with the back five and then a few of those players uh, and their ability to go forward, such as Depay or, or Denzel Dumfries. But um yeah, credit to the Czechs. You've you've got to score. Um, you know when you when you've got a, a spare man, they they put them to the sword and and put two goals in in pretty rapid time, and that's meant the end for old Frank De Boer, who's uh, he's left in an, and I quote anticipation of the evaluation, which uh, translates to jumped before he was pushed. I think so. That's the end of him and the Dutch. And good luck to the Czechs going forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that De Boer managerial campaign for his career doesn't get any better. So. Um, I'll hand back to you, Rob. We're going to do the quarterfinals in stoppage time. Lots of European news, which we didn't get to, but I'll just ask you one thing. Can you name something that you can get for free? What, something you can get for free. The smile of a child. You can, but you can also, you can also get Lionel, Lionel Messi for free because he's a I'll free take agent now. So, uh, no, I've, already, I've already declared him the boy who cried wolf. I so, what uh, he's ripped into Lionel Messi in the first hour of the show, yeah. uh, Derek, which you didn't hear. And um, I'll tell you what, um, our listeners will be uh, choking on their Wheaties. All right, okay. We've got to wrap it up there, boys. We need more time after the break. Okay, we can continue this conversation in stoppage time next on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most. This is box to box. This is stoppage time. The fourth official has only given us six and a half minutes because we were a little indulgent. We'd been looking forward to talking to Max for a long time, and uh, we chatted a little longer with him than we anticipated. But uh, look, let's make our predictions. And I know we do want to. We mentioned earlier in the show we're just going to just give a little run through of the streaming services in Australia on football. So, so uh, Derek, steer the ship. Yeah, so quarterfinal. Uh, one in St. Petersburg is going to be 
Switzerland versus Spain, and I'll go to you, Willem, to get your hot take on uh, how that game's going to go. I think Spain will win, Derek, provided that they give a start to Danny Olmo. Now, this is a player who I profess I hadn't seen a great deal of because I don't watch a lot of La Liga, but I thought he changed the game when he came on against Croatia. His range of passing, short passes, long passes, crossing as well, I thought he was dynamite with ball at feet, to be honest. I like the Swiss. They battled really hard against the French, and I like their big striker, Seferovic, as well. He's a sort of old-school tough guy, doesn't take any nonsense. But I think Spain, uh, with Morata, with a little bit more confidence behind him, should be able to get this done. They did go the, I mean, both sides went the full 120 minutes, but uh, I think Spain, this will be the end of the Swiss. Belgium, Italy, and I think we know where your alliances lie, Rob, is it's going to be uh, the Azuri again here? Definitely. I was down in Ligon Street at Café Noturno. Uh, I'll be down there uh, using all the COVID compliance uh, requirements. Uh, obviously, uh, those who listen to this show know I'm married to an Italian girl. I've been with her for 30 years. I'm totally immersed. They can refer to me sometimes as the consigliere, even though uh, I don't have uh, genuine Italian blood. I'm tipping Italy to, I think it's an upset against Belgium, despite the fact that Italy have got such a storied history in, in international football at the level. I mean, we know this golden generation of, of Belgian players. Uh, you know, you look at the Hazard brothers, you look at Romelu Lukaku, you look at, well, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, I mean, is he going to play? That's a question mark. Uh, it's doubtful that, that he will play, but uh, you know they, they're just an amazing side. But I, I just love the, uh, the the Italian side. I think Mancini's got them just motoring at the right level. He's got them playing entertaining football. We know they haven't scored three goals in any European tournament. They come out and score three goals in the first two tournaments. They got out of jail on the weekend against the Austrians. I think they upset Belgium and win that one in regulation time. Hey, do you reckon this is one of the trickiest ones to call? Czech Republic against Denmark. Is the fairy tale going to continue? Well, I think um, I'm, I'm going to continue on the uh, the fairy tale route here. I think Denmark um, have been very serviceable, and they've since the Christian Eriksen um, incident in the, the first game, they've well and truly um, done a very good job. And uh, and I think that'll continue. And I think the Czech Republic have been plucky and um, inconsistent and dangerous at times, but I just think the momentum is with the Danes and uh, the Vikings will get up. And bring us home, Dino, England versus Ukraine. Uh, I think I know which way you're going to go, but what's going to happen in Rome? Yeah, look, uh, I think obviously an England win, um, but there are a few maybe queries in regards to some yellow cards and will will then uh, Gareth Southgate maybe bring some of the squad players in, like Sancho hasn't really had much to, to play so far, Foden. Uh, comes to mind as well but the one thing I do think is obviously Sterling as <laughs> to be fair to him uh, with three goals and I think Grealish is an absolute must that I want him to start more than anybody else but I still think England will win but Ukraine were very good uh, Zinchenko scored a cracking goal and I don't know how you pronounce it but is it Dom Dom Dombic on the 121st minute, so that uh, that got them out of jail. So, but I think it'll be a good game. Indeed, Hennessy is available for Ukrainian translation listeners, <laughs> so uh, give them a call if you need that. Um, <laughs> edge, edge quickly. Uh, we're at the last eight, but you're you're thinking about expansion to 32 teams for the next edition of this. Tell us more. Well, the group stage was so much fun with uh, the, the likes of Russia and North Macedonia that I think they should go the whole hog, expand to 32 teams. I'm just going to rattle off the next eight um, FIFA-ranked teams, Serbia, Norway, Romania, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Greece, Iceland and Bosnia. Imagine if some of those were in, it would be even better. And also, we get rid of the third-placed um, teams getting through to round 16, which I think is a bit crappy. Back to you, Rob, but that is our quarter-final prediction. 
All right, well, uh, let's see who's right. And um, we haven't uh, given Dino's roundup of our selection so far, so we'll just park that for next week and we'll we'll recap on uh, the state of the nation insofar as our tips are concerned. Okay, so uh, we did promise earlier in the show, before we wrap up, that Ed just give a little summary because it is very confusing as to what streaming services you need to watch football in Australia. It used to be Foxtel. Now it's just about uh, every streaming service there is has got their toe in the water. For football fans, this is what you need to consider when you're uh, looking to line up your providers to get football content uh, over the next uh, 12 to uh, 36 months. Stan, uh, well, the nine Stan network have secured the Champions League and Europa League, so you'll need to uh, shell out about 35 bucks a month uh, in order to get that. Uh, network 10 Paramount, that's the one you want, really. A-League, FFA Cup, W-League, Socceroos and Matildas. Uh, that'll be your, that'll be your staple, no doubt about that. Optus Sport, well, how can you not uh, have them uh, after the the coverage of the Euros? But don't forget they've got the Women's World Cup in 2023, and also Women's Super League, and of course the English Premier League. Um, they're a staple as well. And um, in terms of Foxtel, Ko, Bean Sports, you can get this content through a number of different uh, options, but you're going to need to pay a bit of a premium. Um, the Carabao Cup, the Championship. I know Dina will like that. Serie A, League One, Bundesliga, and of course, Ange Postacoglu in Scotland. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be setting uh, calendar reminders to cancel and rebook and do all those sorts of things. I know I certainly will be because I'm not going to get stitched up by just paying like I have done, as many people have done over the years, by signing up and forgetting <laughs> and not knowing how to cancel. As <laughs> Dino laughs, knows exactly what I'm talking about. Dino, yeah, exactly right. Mate, enjoy the weekend. Yeah, likewise, and uh, well done, boys. All right, thank you, Derek. Thank you very much, Sam. Willem. Thank you, gents. Enjoy the weekend. And Michael. Go Belgium. And Damo, from the bleachers, we keep promising you, we'll get you on next week because Italy is still going to survive. We'll get you on next week after Italia Belgium loses. Italia stay desta. There we go, dear Italia stay desta. Ladies and gentlemen, we've loved having you on again. Enjoy the weekend of football. It's going to be epic and we will join you next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.